2: Bloomberg sound on the insiders the influencers the insights
1: Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors infrastructure has always been bipartisan
3: Bloomberg sound on on Bloomberg radio I'm Jack Fitzpatrick with Bloomberg. Coming up on the show today, we got to talk about the Facebook Oversight Board decision to uphold the suspension of Donald Trump's account. Also, Representative Liz Cheney's leadership position among House Republicans is in peril. And of course, we've heard that the U.S. is going to back the push to waive intellectual property protections for COVID-19 vaccines. I'm talking later to Boyd Matheson, host of Inside Sources on KSL News Radio out in Utah. Also a former chief of staff to Mike Lee. And of course, we've got Genie Sean Zeno, Bloomberg. Politics contributor, big news day, big Cinco de Mayo. Uh, top story of the day, I think, Facebook's oversight board, the so-called Supreme Court of Facebook, upholding the suspension of the former president, uh, former President Donald Trump's Facebook account. Uh, after what he shared leading up to the January 6th riots at the Capitol. They recommended, though, a review of this decision within six months. On the phone with us, joining us, is Boyd Matheson of KSL News Radio uh, in Utah and a former chief of staff to Senator Mike Lee. Boyd, thanks so much for joining us. Very curious, uh, from your perspective, with all the controversy around this, uh, the back and forth with Facebook temporarily kicking Donald Trump off and then saying we need a review of this, and then their board saying you need to review this even further. Is Facebook just setting itself up for legislation and regulation? Is the government going to step in here, do you think?
2: Yeah, I think it's fascinating. As, the, uh, as that report came out this morning, you could almost hear the judiciary staff of uh, many members of Congress writing the questions they're going to be <laughs> asking. Uh, of Mark Zuckerberg, next time they haul him in, uh, for some questions. And it's interesting. There's really some some fascinating wraparound uh, and almost alternate universe conversations going on where, uh, in a in a real rarity, you have many Republican members of Congress uh, calling for more regulation, not less regulation. And, uh, of course, a lot of that uh, they feel is because of targeting conservatives over liberals and so on. Uh, and of course, there are examples of, of both sides uh, dealing with that. But it is going to be a fascinating conversation in our nation's capital to see what comes of this, uh, and and really some interesting conversations around things that may even get into federal election law. If yeah. the former president, if the former president decides to run again in twenty twenty four, and he's not on Twitter and he's not on Facebook, does that become problematic? Uh, as it relates to federal election law. So lots of fascinating stuff coming out.
3: Well, yeah, you made a really good point. We're hearing from Republicans, and we're hearing from Democrats too. Uh, a lot of people frustrated with Facebook, but it seems to unsurprisingly be coming from different angles. Now, I saw a tweet from Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leader, today, uh, referencing how Republicans want to rein in the influence of social media companies. If you contrast that with somebody like Frank Pallone, who's House Energy and Commerce Chair, uh, who said, you know, this board doesn't address misinformation, it seems like from a liberal perspective, you've got lawmakers who want Facebook to step in, in instances like this, and uh, and probably kick maybe more people off, whereas there are conservatives who are just unhappy with big tech as they see it. I, I, what do you think it means when you hear Republicans saying, we want to rein in social media companies? Is that really regulation? Is that an antitrust thing? Or what, do, what does the government do if Republicans uh, have a big year in 2022 and say, we want to take down big tech what does that actually mean
2: Yeah I think it's one of those very slippery slopes uh, for all sides because the uh, the interesting thing is that it's easy to call for that uh, that censorship uh, the first time but the and you usually like that kind of censorship it's the second censor that happens that usually is you being censored that people are less excited about and those those potent, those pendulums tend to to swing back and forth, and so we, uh, I think that will be one thing that will be interesting. Is it just antitrust, as you mentioned? Is it more in terms of regulatory oversight in terms of these? Uh, and then, you know, what uh, the, you have the financial models of all of these as well, uh, where these companies are profiting by the way they're regulating and serving up information as well. So there's a there's a host of uh, issues that, again, the the uh, Senate and House Judiciary Committees uh antitrust to uh everything else is is gonna be very busy I think in the coming months.
3: Right now, before we even really get to that, before we get to the process of legislating and regulating, I think there are some questions to be answered just in terms of how Facebook is handling this. And as I mentioned, there there was a bit of a back and forth. You know, when this initial suspension came into place in January, Facebook asked the oversight board for input on what do we do when it's a politician who we're thinking about suspending. Jeannie, I'm curious how you see this. Uh, what are we learning in terms of, you know, does an oversight board help? Does it even help to have a, you know, as, as I said, some people call it the Supreme Court of Facebook. Uh, what are we learning about the efficacy of that kind of supposedly independent organization helping govern a big social media company?
1: Well, there's a few things that we're learning. Number one is, before we even get to this oversight board, is the fact that Donald Trump is dominating the news today. Not just this story, also about Republican leadership, also the Amy Berman Jackson story, right? Down down the stretch, you look at the top of the news today and he is all over it. This is the tip of the iceberg. And as we look at this oversight of board what they've done is just kicked the can back to facebook facebook did not want to make this decision they set up this oversight committee, this oversight group, and they kicked it back to Facebook. The issue here is, is that in the United States, we do not let companies that are being harmful to society harm us. The government is going to have to step in on this. You know, we don't let drug companies sell drugs that are harmful to people. Social media companies making big money that are hurting the public in a variety of ways, and there's agreement on both sides about this, have to be controlled in some way and they can't hide as Mark Zuckerberg has been trying to do under this guise of free speech which is they are not they're not press but they're hiding under this guise of free speech when none of that is absolute so the government is going to step in here and rightly so these big tech companies need to be broken up
3: well, you're right about Trump continuing to dominate the attention, at least today. But I think the question is, does that go on and on if he's not on Facebook? And he's, he's also not on Twitter. Uh, now to your point, uh, this actually came up in today's uh, press briefing. The Press Secretary Jen Psaki uh, addressed this. Let's play the sound from Jen Psaki on this uh, Trump Facebook issue.
0: The major platforms uh, have a responsibility uh, related to the health and safety of all Americans uh, to stop amplifying untrustworthy content, disinformation and misinformation, especially related to COVID-19 vaccinations and elections.
3: OK. So, I mean, we're, we're hearing a lot about this. We're hearing Trump's statements that he's putting out, uh, even if we're not seeing his Facebook and Twitter account. But realistically, uh, through 2024, Boyd, how much can Donald Trump dominate attention the way he did, especially in 2016, if he's not on social media? How, how pivotal do you think this is uh, for him running again or even just him getting the attention the way he wants to? To talking about the midterms?
2: Yeah, well, I think Genie pointed out something really critical. Just see what he did today. Even without having those platforms, he was able to really drive and dominate an entire news cycle, uh, even on a day when a lot of other things are, are going on that matter in terms of the pandemic and, and what comes next, statements from uh, President Biden and so on. Uh, so he still clearly has enough uh, SWAT and sway to do that. It will be interesting To see uh, how his own platforms emerge, if they really have any kind of staying power or if they're just kind of flash in the pan kinds of things. Uh, But he is serving as a really interesting uh, uniter of sorts. I mean, any day where you have Elizabeth Warren and Ted Cruz agreeing uh, on what the Senate should do uh, is sort of alternate universe kind of stuff. Uh, but, (laughs) But it shows the power of former President Trump in terms of driving a conversation. Uh, with or without the current platforms in play.
3: Well, and and it also, I think, shows how even though Trump has put himself at the center of the Republican Party, sometimes on ideological lines, he's a bit of a cross-cutting issue. Uh, But what does that mean for the Senate? If they're going to legislate on this, can they actually get uh, some sort of piece of legislation on how to address social media that gets sixty votes in the Senate. I don't think this is something you can do through budget reconciliation just on a partisan in, in, on partisan lines. Boy, when when you say you know, all right, we're hearing some bipartisan agreement. What does that mean for legislating, especially in the Senate?
2: Yeah, I, I think from the Senate Judiciary uh, standpoint, I think there will be some uh, common ground there that, that there could be something put on the floor that that maybe even could get to sixty. Uh, it, it seems hard to get anything to 60 these days, but uh, there there may just be a, a scenario there. I think it'll have to be fairly narrow in terms of scope, uh, in terms of what they do. I don't know if it will go all the way to Jeannie's point in terms of, of breaking up those big tech companies. But my guess is they would most likely start with some sort of oversight or regulatory uh, regime in place that uh, maybe can start to uh, to handle that just a little bit better.
3: Do, how many of these people do you actually think Boyd agree should on the question should politicians get kicked off for lying?
2: Uh, that's a great. That's a great. It probably <laughs> depends on the day. It's the uh, and it would be an interesting uh, redefining of words because you can even see that now. You can see uh, where some of them have said, "Hey, this is this is censorship." Uh, some are saying, "No, this is this is just har- a harm reduction model." Um, and so that becomes an interesting conversation in and of itself uh... i don't know that a lot of the uh... members of congress currently would say yeah you should be kicked off uh... baby if you if you if you told a little white lie or if uh, you were maybe right. uh, not totally truthful but uh... you know it's an interesting combination for sure
3: yeah that's a that's a big issue well, we got to talk about vaccines and liz cheney coming up at boyd matheson with us and jeannie shanzano i'm jack fitzpatrick this is bloomberg This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Boyd Matheson, former chief of staff for Senator Mike Lee of Utah. Big news today U.S. Trade Representative Katherine Tai says the U.S. will back a push to waive the intellectual property protections for COVID 19 vaccines. This is a process that goes through the World Trade Organization. Very glad to have Jeannie and Boyd with me. Now, this sounds like the start of an extensive process, rather. Rather than uh, a panacea for countries like India and South Africa and others that uh, want more access to the information behind these vaccines, but it's basically supposed to help them Uh, create more capacity. Jeannie, uh, tell me, are are we talking about something that's going to make a significant difference in the near future or the, the beginning of a long, long process with the World Trade Organization?
1: Unfortunately, I think it's going to be a longer process. Obviously, you look at cases like India where the need is so great and immediate, and you wish there could be a way to move this forward much quicker than it looks like it might move forward but I do think it's an important step in the right direction. This is a global crisis, and unfortunately, countries that are not as wealthy as the United States uh, are really, really suffering. And so the United States, I think, and the administration has said this, has a duty, as do other states of means, to step in and offer this kind of assistance. So I think we have to wait and see how they're going to proceed with these negotiations over this plan. Unfortunately, it might not be as quick as is necessary, though.
3: Now, this was something that I know was pushed, at least in part, or supported by uh, senators like Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. You see opposition from drug makers who had a lot of complaints about this proposal, although it sounds like the details of the proposal will certainly change. Boyd, walk us through what are the politics of this issue? It it sounds good uh, to try to get everybody in the world vaccinated. I'm not sure it's going to be quite that simple. What What are the domestic politics here? At play,
2: yeah. As always, the 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 good sounding name is uh, is really tough. Jeannie's absolutely right. I think this is going to be a a big bite and a long chew uh, because there's a lot of components in there that just haven't been spelled out specifically yet. Uh, I do think it's an important thing for us to realize that uh, we are interconnected (laughs) in this very interconnected world. And what is going on in India is going to impact us uh, here at home as well. And so I do think one of the uh, positive outcomes of the pandemic is that it has given us uh, a better view of how interconnected we are. Uh, And so I do think that has at least created space for more agreement in terms of the domestic side, as, as you said, uh, but again, I, I think this is just going to be uh, it's not going to get to the immediate needs of places like India and other places around the world for that matter. Uh, that are in the middle of the crisis. Uh, this is this is going to be a long process.
3: And when you say that, Boyd, uh, it, learning how interconnected we all are, I mean, in a practical sense, what's your main concern? Is, is the concern you let this fester somewhere else, and you uh, end up allowing the virus to evolve into a different variant, and it comes back and hurts us even worse? Or what? Why are we so interconnected today?
2: Well, I, I think we've seen uh, the variants already in t- uh, coming whether it's from the U.K. variant or whether it's a variant coming out of Brazil, uh, the one thing we know about viruses is they do mutate to survive. And so uh, I don't think anybody should exhale and think that, uh, you know, light's at the end of the tunnel and uh, all is well in the United States because it simply isn't. It, uh, I mean, we even saw with uh, some of the international meetings uh, today uh, that were, you know, touted as, hey, we're going to do this in person, uh, only to find out that uh, some of those who participated – had COVID-19. And uh, so again, it, it's just a very interconnected world that way. Variants are going to continue. Um, and so how we address it, how aggressively uh, we address those, and again, to Jeannie's point, how compassionately we connect all of those uh, will say a lot about who we are as a country and how we can actually move forward globally.
3: And Jeannie, I understand one of the challenges here is not just writing the text of the proposal and all of the details beyond the general idea, but actually winning over some of the other skeptics. The U.S. was seen as a skeptic. I think there are others including uh, the EU, the U.K., Japan. What can the U.S. do? Why why does it matter so much when the U.S. says, hey, we support this? And how much work is there left to do to get everybody else on board?
1: Yeah, and I think Boyd's point is really important in terms, of your, in terms of your question, which is that the United States has to be a leader on this. This is a tragedy. We look at the pictures coming out of Africa and, and India, and we have to be a leader on this. Yes, there are intellectual property concerns, but we have to be able to solve a pandemic that is destroying the lives and the economies of people around the world. United States leadership on that is critical.
3: Now, I know uh, the the complaint among drug makers is not just entirely focused on money, but on productive capacity, arguing that the productive capacity isn't there for all of the other countries in the world. Very briefly, Jeannie, do you, uh, is that convincing? Why, why is that argument seemingly not working?
1: Well, you know, it's an important thing. They have a point to be made, and yet it is something I think should be surmounted, and I do believe will be surmounted. There is no question this needs to be done. And I think the drug makers understand that when you're talking about a pandemic.
3: Well, this seems like an issue that we're going to be covering for a little while. Coming up, we're going to have to talk about Liz Cheney and Elise Stefanik, the battle to be House Republican conference chair, how the the party follows former President Donald Trump. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Now, Representative Liz Cheney's position as House Republican Conference Chair is in peril. As the Trump loyalists of the party push for Elise Stefanik to replace her, there could be a vote in the House Republican Conference later, uh, actually next week. Uh, This is the third ranking spot uh, among House Republicans in the leadership position. We actually heard from Steve Scalise, the second ranker, uh, H- House Republican whip, uh, saying he supports Stefanik to replace Cheney. Now, uh, Boyd, I'm, I'm curious what you make of this. If we have a, a vote next week between Cheney and Stefanik, first, just can you tee it up for me? What's it looking like? Does Cheney even have a chance anymore?
2: Well, remember, they uh, they did try to take Liz Cheney out uh, earlier in the year, and there, it does require a two-thirds vote of the Republican conference. Uh, they were unable to clear that bar the first round. Uh, they didn't have anyone specific. They were sort of pushing to replace her. Uh, so I, it seems that the uh, the leadership, starting with Kevin McCarthy, it, is saying, hey, if we have someone to put up against Liz Cheney as a replacement, maybe that changes the dynamic in terms of, uh, of counting and getting to two-thirds. Uh, It's also interesting to see how they will make that case, uh, because the case that will have to be made is going to have to be about uh, personality and politicians and and not Republican principles or policy. Uh, Because if you you go to the the board in terms of numbers, uh, Liz Cheney voted with President Trump's policies 92 percent of the time, uh, well above. Representative Stefanik, who only voted uh, with the president about 77 percent of the time. So the argument's going to get really interesting. And of course, those conversations inside the Republican conference uh, will get uh, rather chaotic and we will be interesting to see how they do that coming up next
3: week. Now, this has has made pretty big news. We actually heard a a bit of a hot mic comment on this from Kevin McCarthy, the House Republican leadership in audio that was uh, obtained by the Daily Caller. Let's play the sound on that.
4: Uh, i think she's got real problems i i I, i've had it with i've had it with her it's you know i've lost confidence
3: yikes uh that's pretty significant and actually this got a comment today from the president president biden being asked about what does this mean for the republican party if somebody like liz cheney can't uh, keep a leadership position let's play the sound it seems
5: as though the republican party is trying to identify what it stands for and they're in the midst of uh, significant uh, sort of mini-revolution going on in the Republican Party. Um, I've been a Democrat for a long time. We've gone through periods where we've had internal fights and disagreements. I don't ever remember any like this. And so, as one of you said, and I'm not embarrassed by identifying them, as one of you said on national television last night, we badly need a Republican Party. We need a two-party system. It's not healthy to have a one-party system. And I think the Republicans are further away from trying to figure out who they are and what they stand for than I thought they would be at this point.
3: Now, that line on figuring out who they are and what they stand for, I do find interesting because to Boyd's point, uh, this isn't purely about conservative ideology. This has centered around Trump. Uh, Cheney, obviously, having been very, very critical about Trump's comments leading up to the January 6th uh, riot at the Capitol. Stefanik, meanwhile, standing by him. I was looking this up earlier today. You look at these two, uh, the lifetime scores by the very conservative Club for Growth. Cheney, 65 percent. Stefanik, 35%, and yet Stefanik is the one who seems to be getting more and more support among those you'd call a hardline conservative. Jeannie, what does that mean? I I mean, is this a party that is still figuring out its own ideology? Or what do you take away from this when you see uh, a push toward Elise Stefanik, who, you know, a few years ago, you'd call her a moderate, although apparently not anymore?
1: Well, she does. She lives, um, I'm very close to her district. She's in a very moderate district in New York versus obviously Liz Cheney, who's in, you know, very red Wyoming. And you and Boyd are absolutely right. Any of these trackings from the Heritage Group to the Conservative Political Action Conference—they all give Cheney's, Cheney much, you know, more conservative ratings, and much she's been much more supportive of Donald Trump. Actually, when you look at it legislatively, than has Elise Stefanik. But I think what this really speaks to is where the Republicans see money coming from. As we move towards 2022. And I don't think we can forget that. They believe, Kevin McCarthy believes, that he is going to be potentially Speaker of the House and they can potentially pick up the House if we look at what happened in the census, if we look at, you know, where the party, how well the party did over the weekend in Texas and other signs, they see this possibility and they believe that they are going to need a lot of funding from these districts where Donald Trump is very, very popular. We saw that with Mitt Romney out in Utah over the weekend again. So I think this has a lot to do with money. And I don't think Kevin McCarthy, I don't believe he was caught on a hot mic. I don't know what you think, Jack and Boyd, but I think he knew he was mic'd and I think he knew that was going to leak.
3: So closing this out, here's a quick one. Boyd, if that's the case, if the money is behind Trump and not even in a conservative sense, what, what happened to the Tea Party?
2: Yeah, I, one just to genie's point. Every mic is an open mic, and Kevin McCarthy knows that better than anybody. <laughs> so there was no question that that was an intentional move there uh, in in terms of that uh, mic moment, so to speak. Uh, I do think the interesting thing, as as it relates to the money, uh, is it's very fascinating. It's an interesting calculation by Kevin McCarthy uh, because he's really going back uh, to 2010, and to your point. Uh, in terms of the tea party and that is can you raise money and can you be a counter with a grievance message um and uh, it's one of those i thought president biden was absolutely right that the republican party is trying to sort out who they are uh, they know what they're against uh but in order to sustain winning elections the american people have to know what you're for and i don't think the republicans have defined that yet
3: right Boyd Matheson, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. Uh, Coming up, we're going to have to talk about this SpaceX launch. That's going to be exciting, and there's more news on the debt limit. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick here as often with Jeannie Sean Zeno, Bloomberg Politics contributor, and we've also now got Keith Cowing with us, an astrobiologist, a former NASA employee, the editor of the American Space Program blog, NASA Watch. And we want to talk to him because we're watching to see uh, if SpaceX in the next few minutes, or at least sometime soon, goes ahead with their Starship uh, test launch on the SN15, the new version of what SpaceX is trying to work with. Very happy to have you on with us, Keith. Uh, First, can you walk us through what exactly is the goal for this one, I know uh, a previous iteration crashed. What are they? What are they trying to try out here with the SN15, and what should we be looking for?
4: Well, in, in a word, uh, as the goal of this flight is to not crash.
3: <laughs> <it comes> <laughs> as usual.
4: Uh, well, you know, but the thing is, is this, this program is a rapid development. These things cost far less than an airliner each one, so they can afford to be uh, a little sporty with these things. But the idea is to get it so that you can get it back in one piece and then reuse it. So that hopefully is what will happen today, otherwise they'll just add it to the blooper reel of things that almost happened.
3: And, and what what exactly are they going to use this one for? I, I believe there are differences between the last iteration. If, if you're working on something, obviously you don't want it to crash, but it, say this goes well, what is SpaceX going to use this uh, particular kind of space uh, vehicle, their, their Starship as they call it, for in, in the future?
4: Well, what you see if you're watching it on YouTube, you see the upper stage is a bigger rocket underneath it. And the idea is that you'll have a very cheap and reusable rocket. Uh, the first stage will come back and land like SpaceX does, and the other part will go into orbit. And eventually, this same design will be used to land on the moon, and eventually, if you listen to Elon Musk's sales pitch, uh, to take people to Mars. But the idea at first is to make sure, again, that this thing has the ability to fly and land and fly and land and fly and land.
3: And so, what you know, this I, I understand. This is a, a fairly large craft, and as always, the the interesting part of what SpaceX is doing is landing. As you said, what what are the challenges with this kind of craft? Is it too large to land? Is that one of the challenges they face? What are your thoughts on uh, the challenges of a larger craft, not just tumbling back to Earth, but actually a controlled landing?
4: Well, SpaceX has got the landing big thing down pat with the Falcon 9 rockets. This is a larger vehicle, and what you've noticed if you watch these things come in is they almost get down to the bottom. It's the last few seconds of how you fire the engine, how you aim the rocket, and so forth. And that's kind of like playing with the dials a little bit. And every time they try this, they learn something from the last one. So eventually at some point you get it right. But, you know, it is rocket science. It is hard. And, you know, you lose rockets uh, in the process of getting rockets that you could reuse.
1: So, Keith, let me ask you, um, as Elon Musk, we guess, prepares for Saturday Night Live this weekend, he has also said recently that they will be ready for human flight in two years. Do you agree with that assessment? Are they on track for two years to put humans into space?
4: Well, first of all, they're launching, uh, they just a few days ago launched uh, four people up to the International Space Station in their Dragon spacecraft. As far as the Starship goes, and if Elon says two years, it may be a year and a half, it may be two and a half years. Sometimes his his milestones drift a bit, but he always does what he says he's going to do. And so, yeah, yeah, I expect to see people flying in one of these things within a couple of years.
3: So I'm I'm curious. It, it sounds like you know, as you said, they tinker with this stuff, and these are cheaper enough, relatively speaking, so that they can get a little daring with this. What happens if it goes badly today? Do we see you know? Should traders be nervous? Uh, is that really bad news for Tesla? Or if if this goes badly, is that just ah we'll we'll try again?
4: Well, first of all, it's cheap, and if you pay attention, like a lot of us rocket nerds do. Uh Usually you could see the next one that they'll launch like a few feet away. So if they lose this one, they just roll the next one in. Because these things are extremely, I mean, they're using, you know, uh, the guys who make water tanks to weld these things together. So this is not your father's rocket, so to speak. But I if I were, you know, looking at whether I should buy or sell Tesla stock, I wouldn't be thinking at all about these rockets.
3: You know, if I could throw out a a question that's not totally related, but if we have a NASA, a former NASA employee on, I was speaking recently to actually the lawmaker who runs the appropriations subcommittee for NASA who was talking, and I I believe a number of Democrats agree, that when uh, President Trump pushed for a moon landing by 2024. That was politicized, that was way too fast. He must be doing it because he wants, during what he thought would be his second term, to claim that as a big political victory. I'm curious, if you've been watching, uh, do do you have thoughts on is it feasibly possible, are they cutting corners if NASA tries to get human beings on the moon again by 2024?
4: Well, I wouldn't disagree with that lawmaker's uh, characterization of the 2024 date whatsoever. That said, it's sporty, but, you know, they made a run at it, and it probably won't be 2024, it'll be 26 or 27. Uh, I don't think NASA's cutting any corners. NASA's problem is that they're, you know, they're, they're overspending and things are delayed. So that's the bigger issue. I'm pretty certain that when these things do fly, it'll be safe. But the challenge, again... Is you've got almost two different worlds here. You've got the SpaceX guys who are rapidly trying to do things with cheap vehicles, and, and they launch many of them. NASA only has one or two of these big rockets that cost billions, and it's you know it's a classic economics thing. Where do you put the you know you invest in a lot of things and get one right, or do you put all your eggs in one basket? And cross your fingers and hope you get that right. That's what's going on.
3: <laughs> so, if if we're going back to the moon, how how much of things changed since 1969? Do they get to bring a golf club this time?
4: Uh, you know what? Uh, I don't know that Elon's a big golf guy. I think Bezos is. So if Bezos sends something there, maybe you'll see a golf club. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Uh, it'll probably you know they'll probably sit there wanting to be able to make certain that they can use Twitter.
1: <laughs> so Keith, let me ask you on this Jeff Bezos front where is Blue Origin in all of this obviously he is you know not won the contract with NASA but do you think they're going to make a real challenge to uh, to SpaceX
4: Well first of all uh, one of the selection criteria uh, as the government has as an option is that you know you can't you can't uh, give a contract out for money you don't have And NASA has not gotten the billions that they had expected to get. They got enough so that they could go to the lowest bidder, which was SpaceX, and negotiate a deal. Uh, Blue Origins price is more than twice that of SpaceX's, and there's really no way that they could have come down unless Bezos wrote a check for a couple of billion. Uh, But that said, I would not call Jeff Bezos out at all. Today, as a matter of fact, they had an auction for seats on his suborbital flight. And, you know, he's got a big factory in Florida with a giant rocket being hidden inside. So, you know, you may see a lot of all the the noise and the trash talk coming more from Elon right now. But, you know, uh, it'll it'll flip over to Bezos at some point soon.
3: Now, Keith, I'm curious about what we've heard about this Chinese rocket that's coming down, and they don't seem to know exactly where it's going to come down. Uh, I guess statistically, it's likely to hit an ocean more so than land. Um, what can you explain to me? You know, I, this this is an area where I don't even entirely know what I don't know. How unusual it is, is it for something to come down uh, and to have such little idea of where exactly it's going. To to come, to come down, and what does that do to, you know, international politics when you toss it up and, and are not exactly sure where it's going to come down?
4: Well, these days, you know, it's not unusual that you don't know exactly when something is going to come in, but there's a science to it, and that usually means that you can watch it as it comes down, you know, lower lower. The problem is that this Long March 5, the first stage, it's 22.5 metric tons. It's the size of what you, you if you're looking at the live feed from SpaceX, it's that big and they uh did not include uh rockets and a few other things that other countries do put in that would stabilize this so it would just sort of glide in right now it's tumbling and when things tumble in space like that and they're coming back to earth it's very difficult to predict exactly where they'll come in and the last time one of these long march fives went up they it was the same issue and it crashed in on the ivory coast and in a couple of villages, luckily nobody was hurt, but houses and businesses were affected. So, you know, uh, it would probably be incumbent on China in the future to add a few of these gizmos so that uh, they can be a little more uh, precise in where the stage will come back, such that they can give people advance notice.
3: Is there anything we can do at this point, or do you get to the point of no return and you just got to watch it come down and try to be as careful as possible? Or is there some uh, I, don't, I don't know if you can intercept this stuff, but what do we do now?
4: Well, you know, they'll have an idea within a few hours of when it's going to come in. So, if it looks like it's going to hit some populated area, they'll know. But again, as you mentioned, you know, most of the Earth's surface is water, and statistically speaking, the chances of it hitting anybody are low. And they're not zero, but you know, a lot of people are watching this, so I don't think anybody's going to be surprised where it comes in when it does come in.
3: Right. Keith Cowing, thank you so much for joining us. Astrobiologist, former NASA employee, uh, great to have you on. Uh, and again, thank you earlier to Boyd Matheson, who's a former chief of staff, uh, to Senator Mike Lee. Big, uh, big news day for Asinco de Mayo. Pour yourself a, a tequila at the end of this one. And of course, Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor, thank you for joining us. That's all for me. Thanks for listening. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg.
0: Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. What could
1: you do if your data was working for you and not against you?